I just want to read our passage of scripture here. Um, the first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians 4. And then we're going to jump into this. <clears throat> Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has call, not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So if you're joining us for the first time, we've been going through 1 Thessalonians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote about half of the New Testament. He was a terrorist killing Christians, then God blinded him on the road to Emmaus, struck him with light, told him that he wanted to use him for his purposes instead of his own purposes, and so God grabbed a hold of Paul, and Paul became a follower of Jesus. He became a tool in God's hand. That's what God does. And so Paul used to travel around the ancient Near East. That's like modern-day Turkey and the Mediterranean, Greece, those kinds of areas, and Paul would look for people who were eager to hear about the good news of this king named Jesus. God had already prepared people, and so, God, so Paul would go out and he would look for God-prepared people. And once he found God-prepared people, he would teach them about Jesus, who this king was. And then he would move on to the next town, and he would keep communication, and he would double back, and he would coach them and help them in, to mature into health. So they would be new, healthy families, which is the church. That's what the church is. It's the family of God. Essentially, what Paul was doing was he was going and spreading the family of God. Now, the command given to humanity has always been to be fruitful and multiply, right? Um, but Paul wasn't doing that physically. Paul's doing that spiritually all over the ancient Near East. And one of those areas that he went into was a town called Thessaloniki, which still exists, is in northeastern Greece, very close to the Turkish border. And uh, he got run out of that town within just a couple weeks because of persecution and hardship. And they chased him out of that town, and he had to keep going from town to town until he winds up about a seven-hour drive or a much longer walk in Athens. And in that time period, Paul sends this letter back to Thessaloniki to check in with them and to see how they're doing, Okay. And so that's what this letter is all about. And Paul's been spending the first couple chapters in this letter encouraging them, saying, you know, I miss you guys. I love you guys. I'm really bummed out that I had to leave so quickly. 
but I trust that God is working in you because I know for a fact your faith is real. It's not contrived. You're not going through the motions like you're legit. And then he gets word back that they are in fact doing well. And so he's excited about that. And he's writing this letter to encourage them and then to instruct them in a couple key areas. And so the, for the first couple chapters, Paul's been kind of building up and now he moves into the actual instruction. And not just because it's Father's Day, but I wanted to point out as we go into our time this morning that Jesus becomes our spiritual parent, right? He becomes our spiritual father. Um, and it's from, from, from there's the technical team term for that, by the way, is called federal headship. He becomes our second Adam, right? And so he becomes the father of a new humanity, not a physical humanity, but a spiritual humanity, which is why Jesus says in John chapter 3 that if you want to enter my kingdom, you must be born of the spirit. In other words, born a second time, born again of the spirit. And just the same way that you have your father, your earthly father, you have your earthly father's DNA in you, if you are reborn spiritually by the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, then you have Jesus' spiritual DNA in you as well. And so over time, you look more and more like him as you mature and grow up in Christ, the same way that you look more and more like your earthly parents as you mature and grow up physically. And when you look at Jesus' life, especially a good place to look at this is Mark chapter 1. And you guys have heard us talk about this before. But we see a snapshot of Jesus' spiritual DNA. And you can flip over your lyric sheet if you have a crayon nearby. And you can draw a triangle. Because Jesus' spiritual DNA that we see is, is up, in, and out. Really complex. What I mean by that is we see Jesus connecting with God, the Father, vertically that he's hearing from God who he is, and then he's living out that identity um, internally in community and externally in the world around him. And so if you were to open up Mark chapter 1, you would find that Jesus goes and he gets baptized by John the Baptist. And as he gets baptized, God the Father speaks over him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then it says the Spirit of God force Jesus to go into the wilderness. And so this is that vertical connection that Jesus has with God the Father. He's hearing from the Father, speaking over him, his identity. What is his identity here? The beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. And then the Spirit of God drives Jesus into the wilderness. Now, in the wilderness, for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus fasts, drink, and food, and we see that Satan, the liar, the adversary, the serpent of old, he's attacking exactly what God just spoke over Jesus. Matter of fact, if you read closely, his first attack is, if you really are the son of God, dot, dot, dot. See, the point is that Jesus is connecting with the Father vertically. Satan is attacking that connection. He wants to cut that lifeline to sever that because that is the, the, the root of all things, who Jesus is in terms of his relationship with God and who we are in our relationship with Jesus. We have a runner, just so you know. And after his time in the wilderness, Jesus then begins living out that identity, okay? Okay. 
He lives that identity out horizontally, internally in community, and externally with the world. So the first thing Jesus starts doing is he starts proclaiming the good news that the king has arrived, and he starts gathering people to himself, and they form a new spiritual community. And that new spiritual community is learning to love one another, serve one another, encourage one another. To, they're learning to be more like Jesus. And then Jesus is serving the world around him, casting out demons, healing the sick, proclaiming the good news alongside that community. And so this is spiritual, Jesus' spiritual DNA. Up, connecting with God. In, connecting with God's people. And out connecting with the world, a world desperate for good news. This isn't something I made up. You're going to see it throughout the whole scriptures now that you look for it, if you remember. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians and see why I shared that. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. I want to isolate a couple of the... the phrases that Paul uses here. The first, he says, how you ought to walk and please God. So what is the purpose of this section of scripture? How you ought to walk and please God. You see, reading the Bible doesn't need to be complicated, okay? This is what this passage is about, how you ought to walk and please God. This is the theme of Paul's section here, and it builds out of the preceding verses from the end of the last chapter. Remember, the chapter breaks weren't there in the original writings, and the preceding verses read this. Paul's praying for these people, and he says, Now may our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God at the, at the coming, God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And so he prays that they would grow in holiness and that they would grow in love while they wait for Jesus. In other words, he wants them to be blameless and unashamed and overjoyed when Jesus shows up on the scene to come back for his bride. And this is consistent with the entirety of Paul's writings and Jesus' rhetoric. We see throughout the New Testament, shameful things are done at night, but you are of the day. Behave as one who walks in the light, not as one who belongs to the darkness, so that you are not ashamed when the day that Jesus returns. So how you ought to walk, that's what this section is about. The second phrase I want to point out is he says, in the Lord Jesus. He says, we urge you in the Lord Jesus. Paul is giving them this charge from a place of apostolic authority. In other words, he's urging them in the name of the Lord as the Lord's representative. But there's something else that I want you for our purposes today. There's something I want you to notice about this phrase in the Lord Jesus. And this is what it is, okay? And this is crucial. So if you're bored or someone dragged you here, listen to this because this is an important thing to get. This is crucial, in the Lord Jesus. Why is that an important phrase? Because change without Jesus is always white-knuckling at best or a string of failures and defeat. 
That's what change without Jesus looks like. You're either grabbing the steering wheel and saying, don't let go, or you're smacking greenheads while trying to drive and careening into the canal, okay? And so that's what change without Jesus is like. Now, some of you excel at discipline and willpower, but you also know that even the strictest regimen is only an accident, a sickness, or a slip-up away from complete and utter defeat. For the rest of us, where discipline is not on our short list of things we're good at, we know all too well the shame of failure and the constant frustration of a lack of willpower. But the point is, without Jesus, change is elusive, and change that remains is impossible. This is especially true when you think about the areas described in this section of Scripture, controlling the passions of your body and loving people as God loves them. Those are two areas where change can seem like impossibilities because Jesus loved his enemies. Trying to change without Jesus is just a self-help book, and yourself is the reason you are the way that you are. So frankly, it doesn't work. You need Jesus. So Paul always teaches, you see this, from this framework of indicative to imperative, or because you are in the Lord, this is how you live in a, re in a response. The same way, because Jesus was the beloved Son of God, therefore this is how God the Father commanded him to live and to act. So it's He's saying in the previous chapters leading into this, this is who you are. I know that you're born again. I know you're redeemed. I know you, the Spirit lives in you. Therefore, it should be revealing itself in your life. This is who you are. Now act like it, if you could summarize it like that. It's not act like this to become this. No, it's because you are this. Act like this, just like Jesus in Mark 1. Next phrase that I want to point out is he says, when he's talking about how, look, we're writing this to you. We want you to grow. We want you to do these things. We want you to love, for one, love one another as we do for you. He says, as you received from us, as you received from us. He wants them to continue growing as they received from him. So how did the Thessalonians receive from Paul? Because that's a crucial thing. If he's saying to them, we ask you and urge you as you receive from us, continue in that, well, then how did they receive it? Well, we see in the first couple chapters, they received Jesus, they received Paul's message of King Jesus by faith, by faith, not by getting their lives in order. They received the message of Jesus by faith. They received the basic truths of King Jesus and the gospel, the good news of King Jesus. They received those truths by faith. They received them and they embraced them. They surrendered to them. They looked to Paul as an example. He says, I came alongside you like a father. I came alongside you like a mother. I dusted you off when you fell down. I rebuked you when you grew lazy and needed encouragement. Paul was a pace setter. He says, as you receive these things from me, continue in that. See, essentially, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I gave you the DNA. 
I gave you the DNA, now grow in it more and more. And that phrase more and more is in this these first couple verses, and it's also in verse 10. That phrase more and more actually bookends this section of scripture. Why? This is why. And some of you grew up in different denominational um, churches, and what I'm about to say may go against what your church taught you. Okay? We can talk about it more if you want to. Why does Paul say more and more? Because the believer is always arriving and never arrived until glory. The believer is always arriving, never arrived until glory. And anyone who tells you anything else is either propping up their self, where they're pretending and performing and thinking they're better than they are, or they're dumbing down the holiness of God so when they compare themselves to him, they think they're actually doing pretty good. But Paul says do this more and more because the believer is always arriving and never arrived because Christian growth is like that triangle. It's expanding. It's fractalizing. Or if you want, it's a spiral that just kind of keeps getting larger and going up. It's a pattern that increases. See, the temptation as you mature, those of you who have been in the faith for a long time, the temptation as you mature is to become complacent with a level of growth that you have achieved. But Paul says more and more, more and more. The other temptation is to think that you began by faith, but now it's time to tug on those bootstraps really hard and Paul says, no, it's more and more of what, of what you received from me. And what did you receive from me? Faith. Faith. What pleases God? That's the rest of Paul's section here. And he identifies two areas, holiness and love, both born out of faith. Because if they're not born out of faith, then they don't please God. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Verse 3, for this is the will of God. In case you were wondering, some of you young people, you're like, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I don't know if I should live here, live there, work here, work there, do this, do that. I don't know what I should do. Paul is going to tell you, this is the will of God for your life. You ready for what it is? It's not nearly as exciting as you hoped it would be. Your sanctification. This is the will of God for your life. Is it to live in Florida or Tennessee or New Jersey? Is it to be a plumber or to repair air conditioners or to be a teacher or to be the next Lieutenant Dan? This is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. <laughs> I saw the boats. Flock seven or eight, Janice. Okay. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress his or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but he has called us for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit. What is God's will for your life? 
your sanctification. Well, what is sanctification? Some synonyms. If you bust out the thesaurus, the dictionary, sanctification is purification. It is refining. It is growing in holiness. It is being set apart for God's kingdom purposes. If you were going to summarize it, sanctification is being made by the spirit of Jesus more like Jesus as you grow up. In other words, you start with that spiritual DNA and you go from being a baby to a toddler to a big kid to a tween to an adolescent to a mature adult. You see, Paul didn't want to just have a bunch of babies, all right? He actually says in Colossians, to this I toil and labor with all of it to present you as mature in Christ. That was Paul's goal. Paul's goal was not, let's get as many babies out here as possible. Just have them roll around, a bunch of stinky diapers. No, that wasn't his goal. His goal was maturity. Now, that's God's will for you. This is what he wants for you. See, the fact that we wrestle with God's will and we're like, well, what do I want? What should I do? What? If you lived in another country and you were born in Afghanistan and found Jesus, you wouldn't be even wondering those same questions. You would just be living your life because you're just going to take the job that you can get and you're going to make the money you can get and you're going you're gonna, to all those kinds of things. But we have first world problems, right? This is God's will. Become more like Jesus. That's God's will for your life. Now, you need to know about Thessaloniki um, that the back, you don't really need to know it because the truth is that scholars don't even know it. There's like three sentences about this fact, and they all just argue. In Thessaloniki, one of their deities was called Kabiris. And Kabiris was a local deity, and basically it was a, a, the god of sailors, safe passage, and one other thing that begins with an S, which sailors have a reputation for, okay? Sexual exploits. It's a joke, guys. I know some of you guys are looking at me like, can't believe this. You made that joke. Tough crowd. <laughs> Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> All right. In other words, in the ancient Near East, it was very common to have sexual escapades, not ice capades, escapades as part of worship in these pagan cults, in these pagan religions. And so this was embedded within the culture in Thessaloniki. And so you can understand why Paul says, don't behave in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do, because this was their entire framework, their entire culture. And why is that significant? It's important because of this. Just because your culture accepts something tolerates it, or even celebrates it, doesn't mean that God is neutral towards it, okay? And so in the Thessalonian culture, that was totally normal for me to stop at the Kabiris temple on the way home because I'm really stressed out, and then I'll go home after that, right? Totally normal in Thessaloniki 2,000 years ago, but just because it's normal for the culture doesn't mean God accepts it or celebrates it. See, in many ways, when we stand with the Lord, as we grow to be more in his image, as we grow with his spiritual DNA, we are standing against a tide, a tide of things that are abhorrent 
to Jesus and against his word. But he gives us more grace for the failures as well. And so what is the will of God? It's your holiness. Specifically, Paul says right here, to control your own body in holiness and honor. The obvious big struggle here for the Thessalonians is purity. Now, at this point in time in my sermon, and maybe if I was a different preacher, it would be easy to, from here, just go and blast the world for all of the failures of their sexual ethic and the fact that it's June, and I could just go on and on and on. But I'm not going to do that. Do you want to know why I'm not going to do that? Because Paul's not concerned with the world. Because we can't expect the world to behave like Jesus when Jesus' followers don't behave like Jesus. Okay? And so I don't expect the world to embrace Jesus' position on ethics because the world doesn't follow Jesus. You see, salvation doesn't come by cleaning yourself up. It comes by faith. And remember, pure, Paul wants to present a pure bride to Jesus. He wants Jesus' bride to be pure. And this is why Jesus and why Paul are concerned with purity. Because we are the bride of Christ being prepared for him. So what is sexual immorality? Well, we could make a big, long list, but instead we're going to make it really simple. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at another person with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. It starts there, and the sky's the limit, people. That's what sexual immorality is. It begins by having lust in your heart which every person on the planet can relate to, and then anything else from there, it just spirals into decadence. And so we don't need to make a list because we can all relate to foundation level, okay? And so everything else, that's what Paul says. He says elsewhere, he says, these things, immorality, should not even be named among God's people. In other words, the term shouldn't even be in the same sentence as church. There's no place for it in the body of Christ. Jesus needs to purge it from us. And Paul explains the reason that we don't have time for this is because our bodies and our desires do not exist to be used without discretion, but instead they have a purpose, and the purpose is honorable. The purpose is to control your body in holiness and honor in order to love God and love God. People. And the opposite of loving people and loving God is using people, right? And so what we realize is that sexual immorality, although it may appear on the surface as love, it actually isn't love because love as defined by God is selfless, but immorality is selfish, right? It's about what I want to get. It's about my desires, it's not honoring to others. That's why Paul says, do not wrong your fellow human in this way. Because this kind of sin is to harm your fellow human. And you say, well, what does Paul, what does God think about this? What does Paul think about it? Well, Paul makes it quite, quite clear. He says that God has an opinion, and his opinion is very strong. What's his opinion? He says, God is an avenger 
in these things. Not like Captain America, like a real Avenger. Now, that should sound terrifying to us. The point is this, to disregard purity is to flippantly disregard God. That's the point. It's not a joke. Grow in holiness. Use your body to love God and honor one another. We're going to go rapid fire. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that's indeed what you're doing. We urge you to do this more and more, to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders. See, God teaches us how to love. But what does that mean? It means that God's love is the metric by which we understand love because the world's love is selfish. God's love is selfless. The world's love is used as leverage. Withholding love becomes a weapon, but God demonstrates love to his enemies by dying to redeem them. The world's love is fractured by sin, but God's love overcomes the fracture and makes a way for reconciliation. This is the difference between the love that comes naturally versus the one that God is putting within us. And it is this profound love that God demonstrated to us on the cross, and it is this profound love which God then commands us to have for one another. Now remember that growth is a process and not a destination, that we are always arriving and never arrived. And Paul reinforces that by saying to the Thessalonians, you already love each other, but do it more. And I'm sure we can appreciate that challenge because hopefully if you are in Christ, you love other people, even difficult people, more today than you did 15 years ago. Love more. Pursue holiness more. See, the Christian community is about fulfilling all of those one another passages and therefore fulfilling the law of Christ, the law of love. And so Paul talks about that Christ-oriented love towards God. That's focusing on loving up towards God and then loving in towards one another. And then he defines what love looks like towards the world. And so the question that we want to end with here is, how does a Christ follower engage the world with love? And there's lots of things that could be said on this, but Paul specifically points out two things. He says, live quietly and work hard. And in Paul's framework, that is loving the non-believing world around you. Live quietly, all right? I'm glad the sermon's almost over so then no one can fight me on these things. It means don't be a meddler. Don't stir the pot for the sake of stirring the pot. Don't be a busybody. Don't throw fuel to the fires of division and dissension with whispers and gossip. It means live quietly, put your hand to the plow, and go. That's what live quietly means. And work hard. It means don't exploit one another's loving generosity by being a slouch. Instead, work hard, earn your keep, fitting exhortation for a time in history when many are tempted to not work at all. He says, work hard so that you can love one another and you can be respected by the world around you. If I was going to summarize it, it's like this. Don't give the world more reasons to hate you. They have enough. That's what it means. Keep your head down. Do what you need to do. Demonstrate love to the world and to one another. 
And when we live and work like this, people respect you until they don't. But when they don't, it won't be because you're an idiot. You understand? Guys, it's Father's Day. You got to give me something. Thank you, Bonnie. My mother-in-law chimed in. It's nepotism. Summary. In summary, okay? Following Jesus is a process of being perpetually changed from glory to glory. We call this maturity or sanctification. And God expects us to grow up spiritually. The same way you expect your kids to grow up physically and emotionally, right? So that's the summary. So up, in, and out. Up. God wants us to grow up in Christ-likeness, which is holiness. He wants us to grow in in terms of brotherly love and affection for one another. And he wants us to grow out in terms of wisdom as we walk among the world. And those things scale and they fractal and they just spiral, whatever you want to use. But the point is they start somewhere and then it's just more and more of the same, up, in, and out. Okay? God desires our sanctification. And his Holy Spirit is given to you to help you as your helper to press you towards that goal through conviction and empowerment and comfort. And we are called to submit lovingly to the call and the invitation to growth and then aggressively pursue it rather than drift lazily into complacency. All right? And for those of you who zoned out the whole time, this could be summarized by Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, what do you do? Think about these things and what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It's more and more. Think about the right things. Put into practice what God has revealed to you. All right, I'm going to give you five minutes, four minutes at your tables to talk through those table talk questions, and I'll just read those real quick. It says, as believers, God, ex- God grows us up in and out. We grow up in our relationship with God. We grow in as we connect with our Christian family, and we grow out as we walk in wisdom. In which of those three areas do you currently, because it always changes, do you currently feel strongest? And where do you feel like the Holy Spirit needs to give you the most help? And remember, growth in these things is a spiral. And so how can you encourage one another and come alongside one another to grow in whatever area you currently feel like needs the most support? All right, take a couple of minutes to talk about that.